Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. What we're really all about this morning is lifting up the name of Jesus. That's our focus. We have gathered to worship Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our all in all, the cornerstone of our faith. And so as we do that, um, I want us to take some time this morning and just try to think deeply about who this Jesus is. We have been working our way through a new doctrinal statement, um, a working draft that we've asked for, uh, for help. We've been working our way through a doctrinal statement. We want your feedback on that doctrinal statement. Michael read for you already the section in there about Jesus. And so I would encourage you, that's in your bulletin, to think about it this week, to chew on it, to spend some time thinking through it. Um, But this morning, what I want to do is just challenge you to think about Jesus Christ, the cornerstone of our faith. Because honestly, without Jesus... Everything we're doing is useless. Christ is Christianity, right? You don't get Christianity without Christ. And so without Jesus at the center of what we're doing, all of this is just fun frivolity that means nothing. And so understanding who Jesus is is critical. And understanding who Jesus is is something of a challenge, Where do we begin? We've got the four gospel messages, right? We've got the four different stories in the Bible about Jesus' life and death and what he did while he was on earth. And so that's a great place if you're wanting to think through this during the week. That's a great place for you to spend some time. Um, If you were to spend time in Luke, Luke ends his gospel message with a really interesting Uh, account of two disciples walking along the road with Jesus, and as they walk for several miles, Jesus walks them figuratively through all of Scripture. And he says, from Moses at the beginning, through the prophets, and all the way up, including everything that was written at that time, points to Jesus. It's all about him. And then we, we... Um, spent about six months or so in the Gospel of John at the beginning of the year. And um, he, uh, as Pastor Jesse unfolded that, one of the things that we heard was this passage out of John chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing... You may have life in his name. What's interesting about that is John admits freely, there's a lot more than what I could capture. I just couldn't put it all down. And so if you really want to understand Jesus, according to Luke, you, you go here and you start with this, the Bible. And then if you feel like you've got a really good handle on that, there's more that we don't even know. And that we probably won't know in this lifetime. And that's okay. But the Holy Spirit has been given to those who follow him to lead us into truth. And the Bible has far more truth in it than what we can get through in a lifetime. And so we start with the fundamentals. We start with the basics. And we build from there. 
And so what I want to do this morning is just take some of those fundamentals. And I'm going to do that through a passage, not in the Gospels, but actually in sort of Luke's sequel, Acts, the book of Acts. I'm going to unfold for us a sermon that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. It's kind of interesting, doing a sermon about a sermon. Uh, Sort of like a play about a play, I guess. I don't know. But... um, so for those that like to follow, you can find Acts chapter 2 in your Bible. And before I, before I start that and read that for us, um, I'm going to offer up a little confession. Uh, I want to confess to you, um, and there are children among us, because during the summer we like to keep some of the kids with us to participate with their parents. And so I will tell you right now, as a young lad... Um, I was often in church distracted. I know that's hard to believe. Um, I was, as a young boy, often distracted by my mother. Sorry. It wasn't actually my mom, and to be honest, it wasn't actually, I don't think, my mom's fault. It was probably my dad's. (laughs) Um, It was a ring she wore. She wore a ring, her wedding ring. And it wasn't fancy or gaudy. It had a couple of diamonds in it. Um, And and what distracted me was, every once in a while, a little flash of light would catch the corner of my eye. And and so I would look. And what was really interesting about the flash of light from her diamond ring was that as I would turn my head and look, that little flash of light would change. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but... A diamond reflects light, but it doesn't just reflect light, it it refracts the light or it breaks down the light or whatever it does, and and it changes colors, and it does it in this really interesting way where you can actually, like, change the the angle of your gaze, and, and you'll get a little red sparkle on the edge, and then that red will turn to yellow, or you can get a blue sparkle to kind of turn to green if you just kind of shift your, your, um, your, your angle a little bit, and so, over time, as I tried to find out a little bit more about how, how this works, believe it or not, um, I learned a little about diamonds. Diamonds don't actually come out of the ground all bright and shiny and sparkly. They're kind of dull and dreary. Um, but what turns diamonds into bright, sparkly things are diamond cutters. Men and women who are very skilled in the science, really in the art of turning these cloudy, funny-looking rocks into these bright, sparkly gems that we pay lots of money for. Um, And and so, for example, the most common diamond uh, is called the brilliant cut diamond. There are 57 facets in a brilliant brilliant cut diamond. Did you know that? Sort of facetinating. That one was for Ted. Facets are the little shapes in the diamond. And if you look at a diamond, it's not rounded. It's, it's actually got little tiny straight angles to it. And, and on, a, on the top of the diamond, there's 33 of them. And then there's this round thing, like kind of a belt around it. And then on the bottom of them, there's, there's 24 of them. I don't know why, that's, but that's what the artists and the scientists have decided gives you the most flash and the most brilliance and the most color. Facets. That's what makes a diamond do what a diamond does. So what I'm offering you this morning are some facets. 
We don't have time to dig into everything that Jesus is. His identity is too complex, too brilliant, too beautiful. But what we can do is we can hold him up and we can kind of shift our gaze a little bit and we can turn him a little bit and we can see how the facets of who Jesus is flash different colors. And some of those colors will be really interesting to you. And I would encourage you to dig deep into what it means for Jesus to show those facets of his identity. Some of those may not catch your eye as much, and that's okay. That's why Jesus is who he is. So as we look at who Jesus is, we'll read through Acts, uh, a portion of Acts chapter 2, and then we'll go back and we'll look at some of the specific facets and just see what God will do to, to capture our gaze. But first, let me read for you, and I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22, through the sermon that Peter gives. And here is what Peter says. Now, Peter is standing before a large crowd of of, uh, Jews, mostly, and God-fearing Gentiles, who've come to celebrate a particular feast. And the Holy Spirit has just been poured out on the apostles, and there's all this sort of organized chaos happening and Peter stands up and this is what he says men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified And killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Pray with me. Father, we come before you and we open your word together. We humbly ask that you would open our eyes and our ears to receive it well. God, your spirit is here to guide us and we know that because of the gift of the spirit poured out 
first on the apostles and then on all who would believe, we can know truth about this amazing, wonderful Savior, this cornerstone of our faith. And so, God, I just pray that you would help us to focus, to pay attention, and that you would dazzle us with the brilliance of who Jesus is because of Christ. Amen. So, diamonds can change color with the slightest change of your perspective and the slightest tilt of an angle. Jesus, in some ways, is similar. He is known by many things and he is seen in different ways. And in fact, seeing the truth of who he is can change slightly depending on your perspective. And it's interesting because as you look at the the sparkle of a diamond that, that perhaps is blue or perhaps is green. And, and you can, if you work at it, you can kind of get your gaze fixed so that it's almost blue and green at the same time. And just by sort of, almost like the distance between your eyes is just enough to like get two different angles. And you, which color are you seeing? Well, the first facet I want to offer up to you is exactly the same when it comes to Jesus. Our eyes can play a bit of a trick on us. And as we open this passage, we see that Jesus is portrayed in two ways at the same time. He is both man and God. We see that Jesus is often thought of as a man. Sometimes an ordinary man, though not often. Sometimes as a a prophet. Sometimes as a, a, a wise teacher or a powerful leader or a compassionate healer. And yet sometimes people will talk about him as though he were a god, or even the god, that that somehow he knows the future, that he knows the thoughts of men, that he has power and authority beyond what any earthly person has. This, This dual nature produces this tension, and we see this tension even in the first verse. Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. He has a name. He's not some abstract deity out there somewhere. And actually his name is very like any other man of the time. They didn't name first and last name. We often say Jesus Christ as though that were his name. Christ is actually a title. Christ is just another word for Messiah or Savior, the chosen one of God. Um, It's fine to call him that because that's what he is. But Christ isn't actually his name. Jesus was his name. And in, in the first century way of doing things you were given a name and then you were referred to by either your father so he would be Jesus son of Joseph or your trade Jesus the carpenter's son we hear those titles in the gospels or Jesus of Nazareth meaning that guy called Jesus that we all know comes from Nazareth as opposed to some other Jesus who comes from some other place he's given a name like any other man The verse itself, Jesus of Nazareth, a man, attested to you. And yet, he's given also these mighty works, these wonders, these miracles, these things that no one else can do. It was common knowledge that he was the one who healed thousands, who fed thousands, who who escaped the mobs of dozens who would kill him but for some miraculous event that happened he was more than just a prophet there's a tension and we're going to see actually that tension come back again and again in in a number of ways 
But even at the same time, in the same opening, there's yet another facet of who Jesus is. As we continue to read, and it says, This man attested to you by God who did these signs and these wonders. This Jesus delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God. One of the other facets of who Jesus is is that he was here according to the plan of God. Not only was he here according to the plan of God, he was here for the glory of God. Jesus' identity is not just in being Jesus. Jesus' identity is being here to serve God and yet to be God. You know, it's, it's interesting if you read about Jesus outside of sort of our, you know, normal evangelical um, authors, there are plenty of scholars, atheists, other religions who write about Jesus. There are a lot of famous people, even famous people that we wouldn't respect, who have said fascinating things about the person of Jesus. And many of the secular writers who have written about how Jesus came to launch this new religion, about how often the way sects are, are started or, or splinter groups are start, started is that this charismatic leader will come on the scene and a following will start up and people will be captivated by the words he uses or the message that he brings and over time it just builds and builds and builds and suddenly you have this whole new wave of, of religious fervor. And yet, Jesus never approaches the crowds that way. He never comes and says, I am here so that you will follow me. He comes to point people to the Father and says, you see me and you see the Father, but the important thing is that you see the Father, not me. Others, um, not as many, but some writers like to not credit Jesus, but actually credit the Apostle Paul with the launching of Christianity. That somehow Jesus was sort of a, um, 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 I, I want to say victim, that's the wrong word, but, but Jesus was the character in Paul's play as Paul traveled about and proclaimed this Messiah. And yet, that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says, right here, verse 24, God raised this Jesus up, loosening the pangs of death. And why? Because it was according to the plan of God. And it was according to what God had planned out to bring glory to God's own name. It was not Paul, and and it was not actually Jesus coming to launch something in Jesus' name as much as it was Jesus coming to say, I am that one that was promised to you. Glorify God because of it. Verse 24 not just talks about what God did, but it gives us yet another glimmer of the identity of this Man, God, Jesus. Peter says, as God raised Jesus up, loosening the pangs of death, it was not possible for him to be held by it. Not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Yes, he was raised, but it was inevitable. That, that struck me, actually, as I was reading through this Um, this passage over the last week, that I hadn't really considered that. That it wasn't just that Jesus came, died, and then suddenly became eternal. 
Jesus has always been. Even in, in Peter's quote of David, as he goes on in verse 25, and David says about this Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. And he goes on, verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And, and Peter points out, David wrote these things, and if you read them one way, it sounds like David is somehow saying that he is never going to die. But guess what? David's dead. There's no question about that. David's dead. He was put in the tomb. He never came out. And so what is this that he's writing about this holy one that will never see corruption? Well, we have this strange tension in Jesus of God and man, but we also see this this other glimmer of how Jesus is this eternal being. He was on earth for a a temporary time. Some 30 years. But that wasn't the extent of his existence. He, He came to be part of our humanity, to be part of our world. But he was eternal. He was God. He is God. It's fascinating. It's the colors that you only get in the very unique person of Jesus because he's unlike anyone else. The prophets who did mighty things have all died. We keep reading. This Jesus, this man, God, this this one who comes to fulfill the plan of God, this one who comes to bring, bring glory to God in ways that no other person could. This one who somehow died, as we do, and yet was raised, as as only he could be. This one who was eternal, and so death could not possibly hold him, and yet he submitted himself to this death. Verse 30, I'm sorry, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried... Verse 30, but this David being a prophet, he's talking about David there, not Jesus. David being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned. David said... That there is this eternal one, this forever being, this being that cannot be conquered by death. David said, this is the being that will one day ascend to my throne. Why? Because God has promised it. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we saw how God created. He spoke. And we saw how whatever God spoke was. And when it comes to David, God spoke to David. And God said to David, your throne will not die with you. Because your throne will be the kingdom that I establish through another king. And what God says happens. And here, Peter says, this king that you all have been longing for since David's original kingdom fell. 
This is the king that we have waited for hundreds of years. It's Jesus. Now if you read the gospel accounts, a couple of them start with the lineage. And we always like to skip over all these names we don't know how to pronounce. And we go, okay, that's really interesting. But there's a point. Because in that lineage is David. And through the airship, the legal succession, the father to son to son to son type of of passing of rights and of privileges and of position, through that, this Jesus, this carpenter's son from Nazareth, is the rightful heir to the very throne of King David, the mightiest of Israel's kings. The one to whom God said, your throne will never end because, because I promised. And David, not only did I promise you, we heard last week, he promised Adam and Eve. Even in the midst of the fall of humanity, and and in all the chaos, and and in the curse, and in all the tragedy that fell as Adam and Eve rebelled against God. We saw that God gave hope. We saw that God said, I will not abandon you to this curse forever. Because this started with a serpent, I will send one to crush the serpent. And because this started with the sin of one man, I will send another man who will be without sin and yet will bring an end to all of the consequence that other men will endure. And Peter says, David succumbed. David was a man like any other and succumbed to the curse. He died. His reign ended as king. But Jesus, who cannot die, Jesus, who is in this strange position of both dying and being raised, Jesus, who is eternal, is a king whose reign cannot end. Because as he ascends to the throne, his death will never come. And so, if you've never thought about what it means to be under the reign of a king, we don't live in that kind of a land. We don't live in that kind of a system. Consider what it would be years ago to think David, this is the king that God has sent to to fulfill all our dreams and to to bring to fruition all that God promised to Israel and then to know that David died and the kingdom crumbled. And Peter says, at last, our hopes are here. Our dreams are here. All that we've wanted is here. But it doesn't look like we thought it was going to look. Why? Why? Well, because Jesus didn't come the way that men expected him to come. But he came the way that God planned for him to come. And so we we hold up this beautiful gem of Jesus' identity and who is he. And we try to understand it. And we take little turns, bit by bit. We get another glimmer off of the facet found in verse 31. As we continue on, as as Peter expounds upon what David said, he, he says, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see 
corruption. This facet of who Jesus is, his flesh did not see corruption. Why? Because this Jesus, unlike any other king, unlike any other man, this Jesus was perfect. We learned last week that Adam and Eve rebelled against God and their rebellion left all of humanity in this state of sinfulness. That we have inherited this, not just heritage, but literally this nature, this makeup, this character from our ancestors. That we sin, we disobey, we rebel. And this broadly diverse group from all walks of life manages to rebel in all diverse ways. Some of us are prone to certain kinds of sins and others different kinds of sins. Adam was bold enough to, our Adam, (laughs) Lee, uh, not the Adam, um, was bold enough to to say, yeah, I've been selfish. I've, I've, you know, not responded to people in the right ways. There are lots of ways that we can stand here and confess to one another our imperfections. And yet, Peter says, this Jesus who comes and who was raised, his flesh never saw the corruption that comes with death. What happens when we're put into the ground? We decay. We go away physically. What happened to Jesus? He was in the ground. The ground couldn't hold him. He was, he was covered over with the spices of death. He was wrapped in the cloths of burial. And the stone that no man could move on his own was put in front of the entrance, and it mattered not. And yet we know, all of us who inherited this sinfulness from our ancestors, we know the wages of our sin is death. We who are fallen and frail and imperfect... We must die because that's what happens when we rebel against the one who created us. But because Jesus wasn't part of that corrupt, fallen existence, death had no power. And and Peter says the corruption of the flesh was not a part of who he is. And so even in seeing his identity, we see just as much who he was not, as we see who he was. He was not one of us in the sense of sinful, rebellious, fallen. No, he was the opposite. Our God who created us, still to this day, calls us to be holy. Be holy, for I am holy. One has actually done it. None of us. None who've gone before us. But Jesus... Jesus is the one who can say he was holy just as God the Father is holy. He was righteous. He was perfect. And so later when when the Apostle Paul would build his doctrine for us to read and understand and would say that we are clothed with this righteousness of our Savior, this is the perfection. This is the holiness that God sees when he looks. And instead of seeing the corruption of our fallen nature, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. 
given to us as a gift. And just in case there's any doubt that did God really accept this Jesus for who he was, Peter goes on and he says, again quoting David, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so David says, not only is there this king who will ascend to the throne, and Peter says, not only is this king perfect and without fallen nature, but in this new little twinkle of a facet we see that Jesus is given a place of prominence And he stays there, never to be toppled or or pushed aside or defeated. David says, my Lord is given a place at the right hand of God. The right hand of the ruler is the, the place of authority, the place where only the heir to the throne or the chosen one of the king can sit. The place where the the reigning monarch can say, this is the one who's been given all of my authority to act on my behalf. This is the King Jesus that we serve. And how long does Jesus enjoy this position of authority? As long as Jesus is. Eternal. Forever. Unending. Which means, one day, as John writes about this King Jesus coming back to to bring his kingdom to fruition... On earth as it is in heaven, this is the king who was from the beginning. This is the king who came to earth and died and yet could not be held by death and was raised to life. This is the king who was given prominence at the right hand of God the Father. This is the same king who will come back for us, his followers, and bring us into his glorious kingdom. This is the hope. The hope that started in the garden and the hope that carried through all of time and history and the hope that Peter says is now made manifest in this amazing, glorious, beautiful Savior. (laughs) We can continue to unfold facets all day long. (laughs) And and in fact, um, I love verse 36 that comes up because he, he gets us three in one. This Jesus who was crucified is both Lord and Christ. Short little phrase. This Jesus who was crucified, look at this facet of here is one who is the sacrifice, who we said is perfectly holy, who is righteous, who does not deserve the death that we deserve. And yet he didn't just die, he was crucified. The most debased, heartless, sinister cruel punishment of that day was given as though he were the worst criminal on the face of the earth. Why? Because that death was our death. That was the death that would take the place of all who would follow him. And so that crucifixion, that criminal's death, was the way that Jesus was put in the tomb. And Peter doesn't stop there. He wasn't just crucified. He is yet Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the one that we have been waiting for for generations. All the prophets have written about, all of Scripture points to. He's that one. And then he says it again for emphasis. He is Lord. 
He reigns. He is supreme. And so this man who dies a criminal's death is also the king who lives forever and is also the very God come in the flesh. What do we do with this? What do we do with this Jesus who in many ways even defies our understanding and yet in so many ways is exactly the one we need to understand? What do we do with the fact that Jesus is Lord and is King and will return? What do we do with the fact that He was crucified for us in our place to die the death that we deserved? I would submit to you that the answer to that question, what do we do, is in the next section of the same story. As as the story of Pentecost unfolds, Peter says to those who gathered there, This is the Messiah. This is the one that you've waited for. And this is the one you've crucified. And and let me just clear up one of these silly debates that goes on from time to time. Was it the Jews that killed Jesus or not? Um, Yes and no. Peter answers the question. He's talking to those Jews and he says, This is the one you crucified through the hands of lawless men. So yes, the Jews crucified Jesus. And yes, they used lawless men. They used Gentiles. They used the Roman leaders to do it. And guess what? It was that crucifixion that was done for us. And so it's our death too. It's us who brought about that death just as much as they did. Or anyone else that you want to point to throughout all of history. And these people realized this. And so the Jews gathered there. And the Gentiles gathered there. And all who fear God gathered there said, What do we do? If this was the king, if this was God's holy one, and we crucified him, what do we do? Peter answers. Brothers, they cry, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Maybe this is the most glorious facet of who Jesus is. He is king. He is God. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is all these things. But he is the only way that we are saved from bringing about the death that he took that we deserved. How strange is this? I've caused the death of an innocent man. Where do I go? To be saved from this guilt, you go to the innocent man. And he is the one with the power to save you. Do we understand? Do we really grasp how deep this meaning is? When I was young and I was distracted by these little colorful rainbows in diamonds... um, It was easy for me to be distracted from what was going on because, you know, sparkly. (laughs) Um, As I got a little older, teenager, college years, I was less distracted by sparkly rainbows and I was more distracted by thoughts and ideas. I would love to engage in the debates and in in the discussions of lofty things, usually to no great purpose. But, you know, 
It was what you did when you were that age. At least it's what I did when I was that age. When I was a freshman in college, I took an introduction to philosophy class. It was great. Sorry. I know most of you don't understand that. That's OK. You don't need to. Um, but it happened to have a very good teacher. The professor in that class was very good at bringing very complex ideas down to a, a manageable level. And, um, and one day, well, actually over a series of days, the professor took us through the writings of the philosopher Plato. P-L-A-T-O, not Play-Do, Plato. He was a Greek philosopher, um, lived a couple hundred years before Jesus did, and a lot of his writings were followed for centuries as just the most brilliant philosophy that you could, uh, you could get your hands on. And so the, the, in, in doing an introductory class, most, most of these classes include Plato in their materials, and so the professor was taking us through Plato. One particular day, he taught us about how Plato understood perfection. Plato's idea of perfection was that there were these abstract ideals of things like wisdom and beauty and virtue, and that even though the world around us wasn't perfect, we could get kind of glimpses of those perfect ideals in certain ways. And, and what caught my attention, um, my easily distractible, sparkly attention, was he actually shared a little Greek with us. And Plato's writings, the Greek word that Plato used for this abstract idea of perfect is logos. L-O-G-O-S. Logos. Or logos. Or however you want to pronounce that. It caught my attention. Because being, um, you know, interested in things philosophical as well as things scriptural, I had recently learned just enough Greek to really get me in trouble. And... Uh, if you recall, way back to January, when we started in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John opens with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in the Greek text that was actually the original text, that word, Word, is logos. Huh? Wow. In my mind, I'm thinking, this is it. The perfection of Plato is the logos. It's the Word. It's Jesus. So I went up to the professor after class, <laughs> waited an appropriate amount of time for all the other students to shuffle away, and I asked him, I said, are you familiar with this idea of logos in the Bible? Did you know that Jesus is referred to as the logos, and Plato's perfection is the logos? And I thought, this is brilliant, I have him, he will immediately cry out, brother, what shall I do? His eyes did light up, and I could tell he was intrigued. And he kind of thought for a minute, and he said, are you talking about, um, and then he said something along this line, ein arche ein hologos, kai hologos ein proston theon, kai theos ein hologos. And he went on. For several minutes and recited to me in what I assume was perfectly accented first century Greek the entire first chapter of the Gospel of John in Greek. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I came to know later the professor wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a believer. But he was fascinated by Jesus. 
He studied Jesus feverishly. He had memorized long passages of scripture in Greek and, and even some in Aramaic. And I, I still to this day, I have a book that he gave me that he wrote, some 200 pages, an entire book of philosophy on five words. The prayer of Jesus in the garden, not my will, but yours. And he wrote a book about it. And here I am. <laughs> you ever hear of Logos? <laughs> yeah, he'd heard. Um, professor died this year. As far as I know, I've, I had interacted with him a few times over the intervening years. And I had seen him occasionally. And, and I sort of looked up a little bit about after he, I, I'd heard that he died, kind of what had transpired in later years. And as far as I know, the person of Jesus never meant anything more to him than a subject for books and an interesting topic to study. He never came face to face with the Savior. Though in death he comes face to face with the King. He knew much about the scriptural writings, far more than I did. But they never took hold. He wrote books. He wrote articles. And he never would have used the words in those books or in those articles, my Savior, my Christ, my Lord. This is fascinating to me. It's tragic, but it's fascinating. How can one man have so much knowledge and not know the truth? How can we as brothers and sisters gaze on the beauty that is Jesus and see all of the the intricacies of what that means? And yet some in our midst will say, that's interesting. Maybe we'll talk about it again. What does it really mean for me? If this is all we do is build up our knowledge and all we do is come up with new and creative ways to talk about Jesus, so what? Because it's not just in the talking about Jesus, but it's in the knowing Jesus. It's the confessing Jesus. It's in what Peter says. It's in the repentance and in the running to Jesus as Savior to say, this is the only hope I have. This is the only place that I can put my faith, my trust, my future. This is the very core of what it means to know Jesus. And so I hope that something in all of this inspires you to dig deeper into who Jesus is, some little facet, and you want to know more about any of this, about Jesus as king, about Jesus as God, about Jesus as man, about Jesus... In any way. But my real prayer is. Not that you will dig into the knowledge. But that you will reach out. To the Savior. And say. My God. What shall I do? Only Jesus saves. And so. Even as we. Rejoice. At this eternal king. At the one who's never. Not been. And the one who will never not be. 
And we look forward to this king who will one day return with the glory of heaven. That we will rejoice in the eternal life that is the free gift that Peter proclaimed once and that would resonate through all of history since. Repent. Be baptized only in the name of Jesus, for that's the only name that saves. Heavenly Father, this is an incredible story to try to unfold. The story of who Jesus is. And it is far more than we can grasp. And so I just pray, God, that you would continue to stir up in our minds an uneasy tension at wanting to know more, at wanting to be closer, at wanting to draw nearer to this Jesus. God, don't leave us here. When we walk away from this place, don't stop working in our hearts and our minds, but continue to challenge us with drawing closer to the Savior who saves, to the Lord who is indeed Lord of all, the King whose kingdom will never end. And we give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Peter would go on to say, for the promise that is the promise of salvation in Christ is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So go this morning rejoicing in that promise that it is given to all who are far off, which is us. Go in the name of Christ. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.